A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And today we'll talk a little bit about one of the most uh, fascinating and uh, interesting personalities of the last century, Rabbi Chiel Yaakov Weinberg, better known as the Seride Eish, which is the uh, Sefer or Sfarim, several of them, uh, Chuvas, Shilas Chuvas that he wrote under that name, um, and um, when you go to do the Harmanuchas tours, which he's buried there, which is also quite an interesting story how he got there, it was a, uh, pretty much a, uh, a fight during his funeral about how he got there, which is an interesting story, but he's right there in the center of things, and it says on the Baal Hasri Deyesh, it has that as his title, so some people call him Rabbi Chil Yaakov Weinberg, some people call him the author of the Sri Deyesh. But I want to start off uh, the story of him and his very interesting life and the different uh, stops that he had along the way. Um, with uh, A couple of years ago I was by a Sheva Brachis and, and um, a son of a very famous uh, personality in Yerushalayim who was an old Chevroner Talmud, one of the first, uh, one of the pioneers of, of Haredi psychologists in Yerushalayim. His name was Shlomo Hoffman. So one of his, he died a few years ago, about six or seven years ago. So his son was sitting next to me by a Sheva Brachis, and he told me about his father, who was very close with the Rashi Yeshiva of Hebron, when he learned there, he actually came from Czechoslovakia, from a family of Spinka Hasidim, but when he came to Israel, like it happened to many others, they went to Litvish Yeshivas, and they became very attached to their rabbis in the Lithuanian Yeshiva world. So he was in Hebron Yeshiva, and he was close with um, Reb Chaskel Sarna, and especially Reb Meir Chodesh, the Mashkiach, and especially someone who was not directly affiliated with Hebron at the time, Reb Isaac Sher, was affiliated with Slobodka, but lived right near the yeshiva during the 1940s. He became very close with him as well. And he was given, was, you know, was uh, offered a shidduch with what would eventually become his wife, which was from a 
Yakisha German family. And his rebbeim at the Chevron Yeshiva, they said, come on, we took you out of your Spinka Czechoslovakia background. We made you into this top-notch Chevron guy. You're going to marry just a regular girl from, from a Yeki, a German background, without any big yichas. Uh, no, we have to check into this girl, what she's all about. This is what his son is telling me. So eventually what happened was, was that they found out that this uh, yucky girl, her family came from a town in Germany called Geisen. I think I'm pronouncing it right. If not, then uh, someone will correct me. Geisen, Giesen, something like that. And um, and they found out that when Rabbi Chil Yaakov Weinberg was one of one of the facets of his life, is one of the greatest products of Slabatka, a product of the great Musser of the altar of Slabatka, and a close student of the altar, that was one of the sides to him, one of the many sides to Rechid Yaakov Weinberg. So eventually he came to study in the university at Geisen, and that's where he wrote his doctorate, that's where he was in the university for a bunch of years. So he had sometimes babysat in the Levy home, which was the home of the uh, the the woman who Rabbi Shleim Hoffman eventually married, and he babysat this little girl when she was in her crib. They said, oh, you're marrying the girl who Rebichil Yaakov Weinberg babysat for her when he was in university at Geisen. Go ahead with the shidduch. She has yichas. This is what the guy told me. So you see how that's, that story really brings out the whole, the whole confusion about who Rebichil Yaakov Weinberg was. On one hand, they're looking at him as as major yichas, he's a Talmud of the altar Slobodka, and if he was the babysitter for this girl, then a boy from Chevron, which is a continuation of Slobodka, obviously, he can marry this girl. That's enough of a good connection. On the other hand, how did he come to exactly be the babysitter for this Yakisha girl? It's because he was in the University of Geisen doing his doctorate. And uh, that's not the typical path for a Slobodka student. So uh, there, there you have it. That's the whole... Uh, you know, the whole story of Rebbe Yaakov Weinberg in a nutshell. And uh, really, the story of Rebbe Yaakov Weinberg has been told by many, uh, mainly the one who's the biggest, what we would call the Manda Omer, the one who's the real, uh, one who's researched him and written about him and told the world about him is Professor Mark Shapiro, in a fantastic book, a classic almost, or really a classic in the field. And um, so, of course, a lot of the information comes from him, and he's subsequently written more and put out more letters of his that his correspondence, his private correspondence, which really re- reveals Rabbi Chiyakov Weinberg's inner world and his struggles and ideas and thought processes. So we're going to go and try to see what those struggles were all about. He essentially struggled with his identity his entire life. Where does he belong? And it's something that uh, he l- truly lived in both worlds. He lived in the world of Musser, in the world of Slabatka, in the world of Talmudic scholarship, as a great Rav and Paisik, to a certain extent a Rosh Yeshiva. On the other hand, he was a man of the world, a man of modernity, who accepted the changes of the time and accepted the outside world in many different ways. And he's someone who was equally comfortable or probably more accurately equally uncomfortable in, in, in both. 
Now we have to look a little bit into, uh, he's reflective of the generation that he grew up in. Um, the late 1800s, he was born in 1884, so the late 1800s, on the one hand, modernity, Haskalah, there's a breakdown of tradition, there's a breakdown of the communal structure of the Jewish towns in Eastern Europe, of rabbinic control over the community, and uh, and there's a lot of changes going, a sweeping changes, and it's going through the Jewish streets, it's the age of isms, it's the age of new ideas, of exposure to the outside world, literature, the Haskalah, and that's that's going on on one hand. On the other hand, at the same time, which which would seem to be odd that it would happen at the same time, the yeshivas are growing. It wasn't only Velazhin at this point. It wasn't just the Mir at this point. Tells had opened, Slabatka, Radin, other yeshivas. Navardic is around the corner. And there's uh, and these uh, growth of the yeshiva movement, and um, how do we explain that? And that's something that that actually opens up the book of, of Shapiro. And the the idea is is that there's new ideas in the yeshivas. There's the Musar movement, which starts outside of the yeshivas, Rabbi Shmuel Salanter, but eventually the, the altar of Slavatka brings it into the yeshiva, and not only that. Which, which the Muslim movement eventually becomes an antidote to the Haskalah, and it becomes an answer for the youth. It becomes attractive. It makes the yeshivas more um, sound and able to retain the 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 bright and the best, uh, the best and the brightest inside the yeshivas. Not only that, but the breakdown in the communal structure of the Jewish communities across Eastern Europe make the classic places of learning throughout the history of the Jews of Eastern Europe, the local-based medrash, the local cloys, the informal setting of Torah scholarship. And that was on the down. That was going out. That was on its way out. That was almost done for. But the formal yeshiva setting... That was on the rise. People were leaving the old-fashioned base medrash setting and were heading towards the yeshivas. Now, not necessarily that every gadol was produced in the yeshiva, but in but uh, many there were many who who uh, great people who never learned in a formal yeshiva setting, and it didn't mean that just because it was the downfall of the base medrash and the rise of the formal yeshiva that everyone went to yeshiva. It definitely did not mean that. But uh, in general, there was an atmosphere that in Lithuania, at least, there was a respect for Torah scholarship, and that remains so. So that's the milieu, that's the background where uh, Rabbi Chil Yaakov Weinberg grows up. And we'll try to follow him on a few of his stops uh, throughout his life. He grows up in a town called uh, uh, Chechnovce. Chechnovcha became famous because Rebel Yibarach Kamai, who later became the Rav and the Rosh Yeshiva of the Mir Yeshiva, so, and, and father of the dynasty, Rebelez Finkel was his son-in-law, so the Finkel dynasty all comes from the Kamais, so he was the Rav in Chechnovcha. And um, he he was the Rav there when Rebbechil Yaakov Weinberg grew up, and they they had a relationship, and they... They have all types of legends. They would study together. They, Rebbe Baruch Kamai was impressed with him. 
Rabbi Yaakov Weinberg was definitely a child prodigy. He was definitely a brilliant uh, man. That's clear from reading any of his writings and uh, hearing any of the stories about him. And eventually he leaves Chechnovche and he goes on to learn in uh, a base medrash, not in an official yeshiva, in Grodna. And later on, he, after a short period of time, he moves to, over to Slabatka. Comes to Slabatka in 1901. He's 17 years old. Slabatka was in between uh, revolutions. They had a revolt in 1897, which split the yeshiva. Three quarters of the yeshiva stayed where the old yeshiva was, and they renamed themselves Knesset Beis Yitzchak, and they were an anti-Muslim yeshiva. And the altar in 1897 had left with a quarter of the yeshiva, along with the Rosh Yeshiva of Moshe Mordechai Epstein, and they were a Musar yeshiva, and they were called Knesset Yisrael. That's in the history of Slabatka. But they, he, so Rabbi Chayyak Weinberg joins the Musar yeshiva, and the revolutionary ferment was still in the air. The yeshiva was still a hotbed of uh, revolution, anti-Musar. There was still a lot going on, but uh, he fit, uh, he, uh, you know, acclimates himself to the yeshiva, and he becomes very close with the altar. The altar was impressed with him. He was an Eloi. The altar loved, the altar Slobodka loved geniuses in general. And the, the Rabbi Yaakov Weinberg wrote in his later years about his closeness to the altar and the care that the altar had for him. But at the same time, he already began to read and expose himself to the local Haskalah literature. He read Avram Mapu and Peret Smolenskin and Nachman Krochmal. Mapu actually was a Kovna native, even though he had died many years earlier. But Mapu, uh, Mapu lived in Kovna. We sometimes, in our tours of Kovna Slabatka, we even see Mapu's house, as if that's a major landmark. But okay, some people are interested in the history of the Haskalah as well. So he gets smicha at quite a young age from the the Rav and Kovner, Ritzvihir Shrabanovich, who was the son of the old Kovner Rav, Ritzvihir Inspector, and also from the Slabatka Rav, Ramesha Danishevsky. And he describes at, at quite, in quite detail the intense and incredible relationship that he had with the great Bali Musar of the previous generation, specifically the two senior students of Rabbi Stroll Salanter, Rabitzel Blazer, who was known as Rabitzel Petterberger, and in Raftali Amsterdam, and he had a very close relationship with both. Rabitzel Petterberger lived in Kovna before he moved uh, to Yerushalayim, as did Raftali Amsterdam. And Rabbi Chayakovamik recalled Rabitzel Petterberger's farewell speech. It was Yom Kippur, and he spoke to the the uh, people of Kovna or Slabatka or the yeshiva in Slabatka. He gave a speech. And he spoke about Al Tashlicheni Zikna. And he said, You guys are young. I guess he was speaking to the Yeshiva. He was, You guys are young. Look at me. I'm old. I can't do anything anymore. What a waste of all the potential I had. You guys are still young. You could still do something. And he started crying. And he said, He was so amazed at looking at this man who was such a great person and accomplished so much. And here he's bemoaning that he didn't accomplish more and warning the youth to uh, utilize the potential they have. He also learned Bechavrusa. He studied together one-on-one with Rav Tali Amsterdam, who was also the great Balmusser. 
And of all things, they studied which is the furthest thing from a Musser book. And it's actually a great Lamdisha book for, for the Lamdim, for the uh, people studying in depth. And here, there, he's learning this with the great Baal Musser. That's what he learned with Rav Tali Amster. They learned together for quite a long, long period of time. He spent Purim with him. He had a whole story with him on his Purim Suda. And he's in Slabatka for a couple of years, and then he moves on to the Mir. And this was part of the altar of Slabatka's attempt to influence other yeshivas in coming over to the way of Musr. And essentially, he looked at it as saving these yeshivas from infiltration by the Haskalah, by revolutionaries. And his own son, Rebleza Yudelfinkel, the altar's son, went at this time to the Mir, married the daughter of Rebbe Yibarach Kamai, so along with him went Rebbe Chiyak of Weinberg. He actually was studying together with Rebbe Yudelfinkel at the time. They also remained very close throughout their life. And uh, one of the last hespedim that Rebbe Chiyak of Weinberg gave was of the Mir Shashiva. It was uh, about a year before he himself died, and also a beautiful hesped. He was he was a great Rabbi was a great speaker and a prolific writer. He wrote an enormous amount on such a wide array of topics. While he was in the mirror, actually he he had a confrontation together with with his his former Rebbe Rabbi Baruch Kamai, who he knew from his youth in in Chechnovche. and he he now he's in the mirror, and uh, he asked him about. We live in a modern world. There's a lot of changes going around. And he, what do you do about it? What are you going to do? How are you confronting it? He's asking, he's challenging his Rebbe. And the Rebbe Baruch Kamai, being the old school conservative that he was, he said, no, this was good in our generation, then it's going to work in this generation. And uh, Rebbe Chilavak later said he didn't, know, he didn't know what to answer him. He didn't, how, do you, how do you explain it? And he said, I didn't want to tell him that, look, some of your own children went off the derech. They left Yiddishkeit. So I don't know if it's working for the new generation. But I had respect, great respect for Rabbi Baruch Kamai. So I didn't tell him then. And Rabbi Baruch Kamai actually did have at least one son who went off uh, tragically, moved to America, a whole story. But eventually Rabbi Yaakov Weinberg left, uh, um, left the mir after also a short period of time. And he went to Grodna to study Russian. Wanted more exposure to the outside world, to secular knowledge. The Haskell literature wasn't enough. And uh, he went to study Russian. And the Alter Slobodka did was not happy about that. He got the Chavetz Chaim involved, and they uh, stopped him. They got him out of that, and he uh, credited, that, credited them, them with that uh, later on also. So he's a superstar at this point. He already had smicha, he's a Talmud Chacham, he had been in the Slabatka, he had been in the Mir, and now he wants to dabble in secular education. He even contacts a famous uh, secular Zionist writer, Shmar Yahu Levin, and, uh, to try to help him, you know, get out, get out there, and that did not work out, which would have been a very interesting uh, shidduch, because Shmar Yahu Levin became a great Zionist thinker. He lived in America for a time, he moved to Israel in the 1920s, died there in the 1930s, and was one of the great thinkers of the Zionist movement. But either way, he Weimer goes back to Chechnovche, and he gets married in 1906 
to a very simple orphan girl named Esther Levin, who her father was the former Rav of Pilvishki, a small town in Lithuania. And the idea was that he would become the rabbi there. In order for him to become the rabbi there, he had to marry the, the, the girl, the daughter. It wasn't a great shidduch. He was pressured into it. He was kind of forced into it. And it was to get the rabbinical position. And so the marriage was a disaster. And it was a very sad. And uh, the, mar- the eventually got divorced. The marriage didn't work out. But he was the Rav in Pilvishki for seven years. And actually, as the rabbi, he, he was pretty happy. It did work out. He was he managed, because of his uh, secular education and background, which he managed to get, he was licensed by the Russian Empire to be what was known as the Rav Mitam as well. So here, he was able to wear both hats. He was the official real rabbi, being that he was a Talmud Chacham and a Paisik, and he was a respected rabbinical figure, but he was able to also be the Rav Mitam, the recognized government rabbi as well, which was becoming more and more common as time went on, but it was still a novelty that a mainstream, uh, real, Paisik, Talmud Chacham rabbi would also manage to be someone who the government would recognize as the rabbi for his uh, secular background, knowledge of Russian uh, as well. He becomes a big writer at this time. He writes for some of the religious papers, Rabbi Rabari newspaper, Rabbi Yawakiv Rabinovich, the Hamodia newspaper from Boltava. He had connections with Yaakov Lifshitz, the famous secretary of Yitzhak inspector in Kovna. And he has a, a period of time in Pilvishki, which he eventually leaves at the beginning of, uh, right before World War One, And the, when World War One breaks out, it finds him in Germany. He then gets a connection to Rav Kook, he uh, got to know Rav Cook in uh, at that time uh, during World War One, and it also exposes him to the German Jewish community, the Orthodox German Jewish community, to the ideas of Rav Shamshner Fall Hirsch of Tirem Derech Eretz, which begins a long and interesting relationship that he has with that philosophy and stream of thought. At first, it's of ambivalence. He later embraces it, but never completely embraces it. And like almost everything else uh, that he would go through, everything else that he would encounter, he he took from it and he incorporated it into his his mindset and his personality, but never fully embraced one stream or one philosophy over the other. He had that relationship with the secular world, with secular knowledge. He had that relationship with Zionism, that he accepted elements of all these things, but never fully embraced it. He remained in, in all worlds. He remained in Slabatka, he remained in Musr, he remained in the rabbinical world, and he remained a very much part of the modern world as well. Uh, many modern Orthodox uh, um, considered him one of their rabbis also, because he was someone who embraced the Orthodoxy together with the modern world, which would seem to equal modern Orthodoxy. So he was claimed by many, and he really was his own unique individual. So he goes on, while he's in Germany, to the university at Geisen. He writes a doctorate there under under one of the German professors um, about some obscure um, text from uh, from Tanakh times and Targum and things like that, which I have no idea what that field is all about, but the, the doctorate itself didn't survive. We don't have it, so we don't know much about what he wrote anyway, but eventually what he comes to be affiliated with the Berlin Hildesheimer Seminary. 
named after Rebbezviel Hildesheimer, which is a rabbinical seminary, which was a German Orthodox form of a yeshiva, similar to a yeshiva, but in a very German, in a very German Orthodox, a very Tyrem Derecheretz type of an institution. Um, Rabbi David Tzvi Hafen was the yeshiva. When he died, um, it was taken over by a fellow Slabotker of, of Rabbi Chilak of Weinberg, a fascinating individual named Rabbi Avram Elia Kaplan, who unfortunately died very young. He was in his 20s or maybe low 30s, maybe, I'm not sure. And when he died very young, Rabbi Chiyak of Weinberg became the head of that institution. So Rabbi Chiyak of Weinberg remains at the head of the Berlin Hildesheimer Seminary. And in that capacity, he not only becomes a Rebbe, not just a regular Rebbe, he was the one who gave smicha to the Lubavitcher Rebbe. When the Lubavitcher Rebbe was in Berlin, he already had had smicha from someone in Eastern Europe, but he needed a more official smicha from a an official institution, and the one who gave him smicha was Rebbe of Weinberg. So the re, re, one of the, you know, the, the, I don't know whose claim to fame it is, either it's the Lubavitcher Rebbe's claim to fame that Rebbe of Weinberg gave him smicha, or maybe it's Rebbe of Weinberg's claim to fame that he gave the Lubavitcher Rebbe smicha. But either way, they had a bit of a relationship there as well. And in this capacity, he, the Sri Eish corresponded, which became part of the Sri Eish with extensively with some of the great Torah leaders of his day, with Rabbi Chaim about a lot of halacha shailas, after the Nazis come to power and ban Shechita, which was the only Nazi law that directly targeted the Jewish religion. Just stam and interesting to point out. The Nazis did not have, you know, they believed in the racial theory, and their issue with the Jews was racial, and Shechita, for some reason, was the only law ever passed by the Nazi regime that specifically targeted a Jewish religious practice. And, um, <laughs> excuse me, and he writes, uh, the Sri Deish wrote not only about halacha, but in, uh, on a wide variety of topics in German, in Hebrew, in, uh, in, in different journals. And uh, that brings him almost up to the war. The Hildesheimer Seminary is eventually closed by the Nazis at the end of the 1930s, and he makes his way first back to Kovna, and then to Warsaw, where he remains for the early part of the war, which is for another time. So this was just a little taste of the very interesting life of um, Rabbi Chidak of Weinberg. So this was Yehudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, trips, and tours to some of these great places of Jewish history. You could subscribe now to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.